Thanks for joining us at Fort William Baptist Church in Thunder Bay, Ontario. We are currently working through the book of 1 Thessalonians. In this book, we see the heart of Paul for God's people. It's a yearning for them to walk in the will of God and have close fellowship with the Spirit. As we delve into this book, we will see Paul's burden that the people find refreshment in the God who loves them, that they would fix their thoughts on God's coming, and that they would live lives that please Him, knowing how to live with and before a holy God. of the concluding commands. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 19 through 22, hear the word of our God. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Father, we come to you and we ask, and we ask what Jesus himself has instructed us to ask. We ask for the Holy Spirit. Would you be pleased to give the Holy Spirit to us, for we ask, and we know that you are a good Father who gives good gifts always. Would you be pleased to give us a heart and mind to receive your word, that we might hear it and believe it and obey it, that we might not quench your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we've been working through Paul's concluding commands for a few weeks. I compared them to a, a shotgun blast with the BBs flying towards the target, that of the church. And we've been looking at these different BBs. And here we come to the last four Commands And Paul's last four verses here have a, have a jarring effect. Our English translations smooth out Paul's words, but they should sound something like this. If you really don't care how easy your English is to read, it, it should sound like this. The, the spirit do not quench. Prophecies do not despise, but everything test. What is good, hold fast from every form of evil, abstain. I think there's an effect here that Paul wants to have upon his audience. If you were getting sleepy or if your intention was drifting into left field a bit, Paul's peculiar way of speaking wakes you up, catches your attention. And Paul does this for good reason. He brings his concluding commands to a close. He, he wants our attention fixed upon the Spirit and the Spirit's work in the church, and our duty towards the Spirit, namely this, that we might not quench the Spirit of God. And so Paul says to us, do not quench the Holy Spirit. And that's where I want to fix our attention this morning on verse 19. And our sermon can be broken up into two halves. In the first half, we're going to look at the Holy Spirit. and the second half, we're going to focus in on the command, do not quench. What does that mean? How do I not do that. So let's start by thinking about the Spirit. 
And so if we want to make sense of what Paul's talking about in verses 19 through 22, we need to think about the Spirit. And, and so here is a short, very short introduction to the Holy Spirit. And so we can start with a few negations to get us warmed up as we think about the Spirit. We can start with this. The Holy Spirit is not in it. The Holy Spirit should not be confused with an impersonal force of nature like gravity. The the Spirit isn't something that is out there, something that can be grabbed a hold of and manipulated for good or for ill like the the force in Star Wars, nor is the Spirit to be equated with some sort of, of concoction of feelings in your soul, warm and happy. No, that's not what we're talking about when we talk about the Holy Spirit. No, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we must first confess the deity of the Holy Spirit. And so we happily confess the deity of the Father and the Son, and so we also happily confess the deity of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is uncreated, immeasurable, eternal, almighty. The Spirit is equal in glory and honor and majesty with both the Father and the Son, and so too is to be worshipped alongside the Father and the Son. And so we confess the Spirit's deity. And after the Spirit's deity, we must give place to the Spirit's person. We must always refrain from calling the Spirit in it. For not only is that a mistake of grammar, when we, when we talk about the Spirit, we should use the, the pronouns he and, and him or the, the possessive pronoun his. But not only is that a mistake, it is an insult to the Lord our God. For we worship God, the one and only God in Trinity. We worship the person of the Father, unbegotten, not made. We, we worship the person of the Son, eternally begotten from the Father before all ages. We worship the person of the Spirit who proceeds from both the Father and the Son. We worship a personal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the scriptures everywhere affirm the personhood of the Spirit. The Spirit is sent. He comes. He appears in substantial form in different revelations. To Him belongs intellect and will. He teaches and comforts and leads and commands and convicts. The Spirit can be grieved. The Spirit can be quenched. We even read about in Scripture when men in their stubbornness resist the Holy Spirit. And sadly, Jesus teaches us that the Spirit of God can be sinned against. You can sin against the Spirit. And there is no forgiveness for that. And so we see the Spirit's deity and His person, and then we must consider the Spirit's work. And this is where we encounter a bit of trouble, the Spirit's work. As we survey our Bibles and look for the Spirit at work, we we get confused as we look upon the Spirit's work. We find the Spirit at times giving what seems to be superpowers to humans. You you think of Samson, and the Spirit rushes upon Samson, and and there he is, filled with strength, doing battle with the the Philistines. Or we think of the Spirit and, and the prophets. The prophets spoke by the Spirit. They were carried along by the Spirit and so spoke the Word of God to the people of God. But we also considered the prophets and they did some very strange things. There's some very strange people. You think of Ezekiel and his public ministry. It was scandalous to the people of God. Or if you move into the New Testament, you think of the day of Pentecost, a day so disturbing and strange that the Christians who were caught up in that day, that powerful work of the Spirit, that many thought they were drunk and out of their minds. So we get a bit confused as we study the Scriptures 
considering the work of the Spirit. Now, we can only overcome this confusion if we place the Spirit's work alongside the Father's work and the Son's work. And we do this because all the members of the Trinity work as one. And sometimes we get this muddled and confused in our minds. We conceive in our imaginations of each person of the Godhead, each person of the Trinity, going off in their own directions, doing their own sort of things. In our imaginations, we picture the Father, and there he is in heaven, and he is seated upon his throne, and the angels are worshiping him with their heavenly songs, and he is concerned about heavenly things. And then we, then we conceive of the Son in our imagination, and we have an easy time doing this, for we see him revealed in the Gospels. Here he is, walking, healing, and teaching, and preaching. There he is, dying and being raised. There is Jesus, and what is he concerned about? He's concerned about earthly things. And then there's the person of the Spirit, and in our imaginations, we don't know what quite to think. We think of Samson, and Ezekiel, and Pentecost, and and it seems that the Spirit is interested in the strange and unexpected. What is the Spirit doing? We have to challenge this way of thinking. Are the different persons of the Trinity going off in their own directions, doing their own sort of things? The Father concerned about heavenly things, the Son concerned about earthly things, and the Spirit concerned about strange things. And the answer that we have to give is no. We cannot conceive of our God in some sort of confused, haphazard way. Our God is one, and because our God is one, our God's actions and creation and salvation and glorification are one. They're one. No confusion. Perhaps the easiest way to think about this and get a hold of this is to look directly at the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Just think about what Paul has been doing in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. He has been telling us about God's salvation and how God has worked to save the Thessalonians. And what we see is that this God has worked as one towards the salvation of the Thessalonians. We can just chart this out. We can start with the Father. What has the Father done in the book of 1 Thessalonians? Well, we see that the Father made a decision. In love, he determined the Thessalonians for himself. Chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And so God determined in love the Thessalonians for himself. And the Father did not just determine the Thessalonians for himself in love. He determined the way in which he would save the Thessalonians. Chapter 5, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God has made a decision, God the Father, a people, and the way of salvation. And then Paul has spoken of Jesus, and what has Jesus done? Well, this is an easy answer to give. Paul has repeated it in our ears again and again and again. Jesus did what? He died and he rose again. And Paul repeats this in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And we see the glorious news. Because of Jesus' death, there is what? There's the forgiveness of sins. And because of Jesus' resurrection, there is the hope of eternal life with God himself. But in the midst of all of this action, this cannot be lost on us. Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, these historical events that really did happen that you can plot on a calendar are the fulfillment of the determined plan of God. You see God at work here, working as one. The Father determined salvation, the people, the plan. And what did the Son do? He accomplished that salvation by dying and being raised. 
And Paul, too, has spoken about the Spirit. And this is where our ears should perk up. This is where we should really get interested. Because this is our question. What does the Spirit do? And we see here, too, the same principle, the one God is at work. So the Father in love has determined a people and a way of salvation for them. The Son has come and he has accomplished that salvation through his death and resurrection. And what the Spirit then does is he takes that salvation, determined for those people, accomplished by the Son, and he applies that salvation to the people determined. And so we ask, well, how does the Spirit do this? How does the Spirit do his work? And Paul has pointed out two ways the Spirit does this in the book of 1 Thessalonians. First, the Spirit does this work by converting sinners. So, you remember back in chapter 1, Paul was talking about how these, these Thessalonians were, were saved. Paul came to the city of Thessalonica, and, and with him he brought the word of the gospel, and he preached the word of the gospel in the city of Thessalonica. And some of those citizens there in that city became Christians. It was amazing. They were serving idols, and they stopped serving idols, and they served the true and living God. They had their hopes on all sorts of false hopes, like Caesar himself, and instead they turned and they waited for Jesus, the king who would be revealed from heaven. And we ask, why? Why did these people change and receive the gospel? Well, Paul tells us the answer. It's the Spirit. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that God has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just let that sink in for a moment. If you are a Christian today, you are a Christian not because of your great wisdom or your great insight. You are a Christian because the Spirit of God came to you and applied the word of the gospel to you. He brought life to your dead soul. He opened your eyes so that you could actually see the love of the Father and the grace of Jesus. He gave you faith. Why are you a Christian? Because the Holy Spirit did a work in you. And second, Paul points out that the Spirit does a work of sanctification. So he converts And he makes holy. What the Spirit does is he brings to bear upon the Christian all the resources of salvation. And we can put this in Trinitarian terms again. So what the Father has determined, what the Son has accomplished and won through his death and resurrection, the Spirit then applies to the people of God. And this is such a glorious thing to think about. Think about it like this. Picture this in your mind. In Jesus, there are boundless supplies of grace and mercy and kindness. And they're boundless. They're enough for today, and not just for today, but for tomorrow, and not just for tomorrow, but forever. Boundless supplies, more than you could ever use. And what the Spirit does is he takes from what is Jesus, and he brings it to the believer. So he takes from the boundless supplies, the grace, the love, the mercy, the kindness, and he applies them to the believer. He brings them to bear. That's the Spirit's ministry. And this is what Paul has been preaching to the Thessalonians throughout the entirety of the letter. And he's been preaching it in in very practical terms. Just think about the, the commands that have come out of Paul's mouth. He's commanded about Christian love and concern that these Thessalonians would would love each other and not just each other, but their enemies and those who are oppressing them. 
Paul is commanded about sexual purity and honor, how we should control our body, even sexually directing it towards God and what is right and true and good. He's given commands about ministry and how ministry should be done and why ministry should be done. And what Paul does is he grounds all of these commands in the ministry of the Spirit. We see how Paul thinks about this in chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. Paul says this, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who does what? Who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So there we see the person, the deity, the work of the Holy Spirit. We're introduced to the third person of the Trinity. Now I want to ask a question. Why do we need all of this theology? Well, we need all of this theology because we need orthodoxy. We need to think rightly about the Spirit, His deity, His person, His work. It really matters because if we get it wrong, it's going to wreck our lives. But underneath this orthodoxy, there is another reason we need all of this theology. We need not only think rightly about the Spirit, but we need to feel rightly about the Spirit. Hear Paul's command again, quench not the Spirit. What is Paul doing? As he commands this command, he wants us filled with a deep and holy concern that we might not do anything to quench the Spirit. And all of this theology about the Spirit should serve that end. Think about it like this. The Spirit's deity. Do I want to quench the most holy God, the God who deserves eternal praise and glory and honor? The Spirit's person. The Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Do I want to quench the blessed third person of the Trinity? The Spirit's work, what does the Spirit do? He brings the resources of Jesus to bear upon the Christian. Do I want to quench the work of the Holy Spirit? And as we think about Paul's command in verse 19, the answer should be immediate and obvious if we have faith. The answer is no, I do not want to quench the Holy Spirit. I don't want to do anything in my life that will quench his blessed ministry towards me or others. And so Paul instructs, and he wants us to feel the weight of this, the Spirit do not quench. And so we focused on the Spirit. Now we need to change our focus and focus on the command that Paul gives us, the prohibition, do not quench the Spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean to quench someone or something? You can think of a a campfire to start with. The the night is done. You're about ready to turn into bed. And what do you do with your fire? You grab a bucket of water. You take some dirt and you, you throw it on the fire and the fire goes out. What have you done? You've quenched the fire. Or you've got a candle in your house. It's, it's sitting there. And before you go to bed, what do you do? You you blow it out. Or if you're really fancy, you've got one of these snuffer things and you you put it over the, the top of the candle and you set it down and it suffocates it. You've quenched the flame. And the point here that Paul has in mind is not hard to grasp. Paul has in mind an attitude or a posture or an action that resists the work of the Spirit. So I want to get practical. How might you quench the Holy Spirit? 
I have three answers for you. One answer is explicitly from the text. One answer I think is implicit in the text. And one answer I think is just demanded by good Bible reading. So I'll set these three answers before you. So first answer. You can quench the spirit by not listening to the spirit. You can quench the spirit by not listening to the spirit. So look at your Bible. Paul immediately binds verse 19 to verses 20 and 21. They come as a unit. And so Paul says in verse 19, do not quench the spirit. And his readers were thinking, well, how might I do that? And Paul answers the question in verses 20 and 21. He says this, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. So how can you quench the spirit? You quench the spirit by despising prophecies and holding fast to what is evil. That's how you would quench the spirit. Now, we have to put this in context, the Thessalonian context. It's hard to know exactly what was going on in Thessalonica, why Paul wrote this, but we can hazard a guess, and I think it's a pretty good guess. It probably had some sort of shape like this. Some prophets, after Paul left, came into Thessalonica, into the church, and what these prophets did is they disturbed the church. They might have said that the day of the Lord of Jesus had already come, Or they might have said something else, but the church listened to what they said, and they said in their minds and their hearts, this is foolish and stupid. And so what did they do? Well, they likely removed these prophets from the church, and in zeal, their their zeal didn't stop there. They probably said something like this, let's not have anything to do with prophecy. And so in their zeal, they were tempted to do what? To overcorrect, to throw out the baby with the the bathwater. So here is Paul, and he is writing to them, and what is he doing? He's stepping in, and he's saying this, to despise prophecies would be to stifle the Spirit's work in their midst. Instead, they ought to recognize that God in his grace has both provided apostles and prophets so that they might know the word and will of God. And what they ought to do, instead of wholesale getting rid of God's authorized messengers, is instead test the prophet. To see if he is a man who really indeed speaks the word of God. A word that does not err and bears the authority of God. And so as we listen to Paul, what is Paul's desire here for the Thessalonian church? His desire is this, that the church would listen and listen carefully to the Spirit's word mediated through God's messengers, the apostles and the prophets. And so here's... The question that we have to face, how how might I quench the Spirit? Well, you quench the Spirit when you do not listen to the Spirit's word mediated through his authorized messengers, the apostles and the prophets. Now, this has a different look for us than it did for the Thessalonians. We don't have the apostle Paul traveling to our city doing ministry in our midst. We don't have the Apostle Paul writing letters to our church, to Fort William Baptist, saying, this is the will of God for you. We don't have prophets, men who actually spoke the unerring word of God coming into our midst, speaking God's word to us. But what we do have is the apostolic, the prophetic word revealed in Holy Scripture to us. So how might you quench the Spirit? Well, you can quench the Spirit by ignoring what the Spirit, what the Scripture says. 
You can quench the spirit by ignoring what the scripture says about Christ and his work or about the Father and his love. You can quench the spirit by ignoring the revealed will of God in scripture. What has Paul done in 1 Thessalonians? He's revealed the will of God, the will of God about sexuality, the will of God about giving thanks and praying and rejoicing. You can also quench the Spirit by adding to the Scriptures or twisting the Scriptures to mean something that they don't really mean. Or to get even more practical, you can quench the Spirit by leaving the Scriptures on your shelf and not reading them. Are you quenching the Spirit's work in your life by not opening up the Scriptures? You can quench the Spirit by not coming to church and receiving God's Word preached. Are you quenching God's spirit. And so the practical point is this. If you want to receive the spirit's ministry, you must then joyfully receive what the spirit has taught and revealed in the scriptures. You must open your mouth wide to the scriptures and drink deeply of them. For that is how the the spirit speaks. Through holy scripture. And as we think about it, this should make deep sense to us. How does the spirit bring the resources of Jesus to us. So we're thinking about the work of God here. How does the Spirit do it? Well, the primary way He does it is through the illumination of the Scriptures. Just, just think about your experience with the Bible. With our natural eyes, when you've gone to the Bible and they're not enlightened by the Spirit, what do you see in the text of Scripture? You just see word after word after word. You read it, you might understand its logic, but you don't see glory. You don't see love. Think about listening to a sermon with your natural ears. You hear the words, they're coming. You might trace out the argument given through the preacher. But what is happening, nothing's happening in your heart. You don't feel this deep conviction about the word of the gospel. But what does the Spirit do? When we're reading the Bible, the Spirit comes and he opens up our eyes and we're reading those same exact words, maybe words we've read before a hundred times, and the Spirit opens our eyes and we see glory revealed in the text of Scripture, glory that we've never seen before. We see the glory of Jesus Christ revealed. And, and, And as we're listening to a sermon, and maybe we've heard the sermon three times before, But what does the Spirit do? He opens our ears and we actually can hear. We can hear and the word comes to our hearts and grabs hold of us and we have this deep conviction within us. And so we quench the Spirit when we do not listen to the Spirit. And so the call is this. Receive the Scriptures for this is how the Spirit speaks. A second answer to how we can quench the Spirit You can quench the Spirit when you walk contrary to the Spirit. You can quench the Spirit when you walk contrary to the Spirit. And so I think, in my reading of this passage, that verse 19 is not just connected to verse 20 and 21, even down to 22, but it's connected to all of the commands found in this conclusion. So I think this means the Spirit is quenched when we disobey the commands scripture so we can just work through this practically you quench the spirit when you disrespect those who labor among you verse 12 you quench the spirit when you upset the peace of the people of god verse 13 you quench the spirit when you close your ears 
to the admonishments or the encouragement or the help of the people of God, verse 14. You quench the spirit when you repay evil for evil, verse 15. Or if you give yourself over to complaining, verse 16. Or if you you stop praying, verse 17. Or if you refuse to give thanks to God, verse 18. That's a very helpful, practical way to think about this. You, You quench the spirit when you walk contrary to the spirit. And we've seen how we ought to walk. Paul has been telling us. So what happens if you do this? What happens if you quench the spirit through acts of disobedience? What does that mean for you? I don't know if you've heard of this man, J.C. Ryle, but he's got this really helpful book about practical Christianity called Holiness. And in this book, he, he writes about our text, and he gives this answer to our question. He says, Above all, grieve not the spirit, quench not the spirit, vex not the spirit, drive him not to a distance by tampering with small bad habits and little sins. Little jarrings between husbands and wives make unhappy homes, and petty inconsistencies known and unknown will bring strangeness between you and the spirit. I think that's what it looks like to quench the spirit. So if you're married, you know exactly what Ryle is talking about here. Little jarrings, what are those? A few harsh words throughout the day, some impatience, some small slights toward your spouse. And what happens after a few little jarrings with your spouse? Well, it creates a terrible atmosphere. It's like you're in your house and the temperature just drops and all of a sudden you're saying it feels really chilly in here. You're sitting in the same room with your your spouse after a few little jarrings, and even though you're in the same room, and you could reach out and grab your spouse, it feels like you're living a thousand miles apart. And this, I think, is what can happen with the Spirit of God, the strangeness. So hear this, if you are in Jesus, you belong to Jesus, the Spirit will never completely depart from you. He cannot, he will not, because he is the seal of your salvation and the guarantee of your inheritance. But there will be a strangeness between you and the Spirit. What might that look like? Well, he may for a time remove from you the comfort of your assurance. One of the Spirit's works is to give you assurance knowing you're stead in Jesus. And he might remove that for a period of time so that you have doubts. Do I really belong to Jesus? He may for a time remove spiritual light so that you might not be able to see what you saw before or or feel what you felt before in your heart. Or he might remove from you the the pleasure of the near presence of God. There is a, a pleasure of walking closely with God in obedience. You can feel it. And what the Spirit will do is he'll remove that pleasure. And because of the strangeness due to our sins, God may feel far and distant and removed. And we have to say, this is not moodiness on the Spirit's part, as if the Spirit is fickle. The distance, the strangeness is due to our sin. We remove ourselves. And it's the Spirit's kindness to make that removal known to us that we might turn and repent. And so if you're experiencing such things, this morning if there's this strangeness between you and the Spirit, lack of comfort or assurance, spiritual darkness, distance, if these words are resonating with you, what, what can you do? 
Well, Isaiah says this, Isaiah 57. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite heart and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What is Isaiah saying? You want to dwell closely with God? The high and holy one dwells with the lowly one. He dwells with the humble, the one who confesses his sins. Isaiah goes on, he says, For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of his lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked, they are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Isaiah gives us the answer that we need. How might we, how might we live closely to God? Well, we do it through humility and confession. We do it through by taking hold of the word of the gospel. Isaiah says, peace, peace. What ought we to do with that word of peace? We, we take hold of it with both hands. We believe it. And we trust that God through his spirit will be near us because he promises to be so. And the third answer. You quench the spirit when you do not seek the Spirit. You quench the Spirit when you do not seek the Spirit. It's really easy to ignore the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. We don't seek the Spirit or ask for the Spirit or depend upon the Spirit or praise the Spirit. But to do this, to ignore the Spirit, is to quench the Spirit. And Jesus moves us away from this sort of ignorance And he counsels us to seek the Spirit. Luke chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus says this. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus' words are so plain and penetrating. What does he counsel us to do? He counsels us to go to the Father and ask for the Spirit in his name. And so here's the question. Is that something you do? Do you ask for the Holy Spirit? Have you asked for the Holy Spirit? Do you continue to ask for the Holy Spirit? And there's so much to ask for. To ask for communion with him. To ask for comfort from him. To ask that he would show you Christ and all the glories of Christ. To ask that the love of God would be shed abroad in your heart. To ask for unshakable assurance from him. To ask that he would lead you into the truth and keep you from error. To ask that he would give you life and strength. That you might kill sin and to put to death unrighteousness. To ask that he might sustain you with spiritual power in the midst of temptation and troubling and suffering. To ask for his fruit that you might have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
to ask for power and boldness in ministry that you might be able to open your mouth and so speak Christ to others, to ask that the Spirit would so move as you speak the word of Christ and convict other people's hearts that they might receive the word of the gospel just as you did. There's so much to ask. And Jesus commands us to ask. So do you ask for the Holy Spirit? Do you seek him? And if you're not seeking him, that is a way in which you can quench him. John Owen, who wrote a lot about the Holy Spirit, once said this. He said, this asking of the Spirit of God is the chiefest work of faith in this world. The chiefest work of faith in this world. Do you want to be a spiritual man, a spiritual woman? Do you want to do something good with your life? Well, what must we do? We must be a people who ask for the Spirit. It should be a part of our daily prayers, seeking the Spirit. And so let's close with that. Let's seek the Spirit together. Father, we are so thankful for your word. It wakes us up. It turns us. It awakens us to true reality, and we often just miss it. So forgive us. And so we pray in the name of Jesus that you would be so pleased to give, to give us the Holy Spirit. We need communion with him. We need fellowship with him. We need his work in our lives, and we need his work in our church and in our city. Would you be pleased to give the Holy Spirit to us? And we pray this in faith. Amen.